You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And welcome to Vernacular Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 8. Yes, and we are excited to bring to you two wonderful guests. And before we do that, we wanted to tell you that you should head over to Twitter, right? Just oh, Twitter, yeah, that's right. And check out a poll that Zach created. Yes, so a little bit of backstory on this poll. One, it's always a good idea to ask the internet what to name someone <laughs> or something. Case in point, we've talked before about Bodie McBoatface, the British, British uh, research ship that uh, was going to be named by the internet. Until the internet voted Bodie McBoatface. And and if you listened to last week's episode, then you heard that we were talking with Catherine and Jordan about naming their baby. And that is where this poll comes in. Because Zach created a poll wherein you have four choices to choose from to name the short baby. That's right. So your choices are Zachary Chewbacca short. James Tiberius short. Or, oh gosh, what are the other options? Jordan Skywalker short. That's right. Yep. And I think there was one more. There is one more. Something Augustine it is, short? Uh, Zechariah Augustine short, <laughs> nice. which is another great name. So if you want to uh, vote in that conversation, Yeah, you've got a few more days to, to vote, and then we'll reveal the results in next week's episode. That's right. So go to my Twitter, at Zach Crippen, and vote. Let because we know. know that the shorts just really wanted our help. <laughs> right, absolutely. And I'm sure that they will consider themselves bound to whatever the internet votes in this <laughs> decision. So definitely do that. Yeah, we also wanted to share with you our contemporary preoccupation and tip of the week. Yes. So our hashtag tip of the week is to eat watermelon. It's so good. It's so good. We have been on a watermelon streak lately. and Especially Sally. Especially me. It's not only – and Esther. She loves it too. That's true. It's Wawa. not only <laughs> Yeah. It's not only delicious, but it hydrates you at the same time. So if you have a hard time drinking water, which sometimes I have a hard time drinking water, I go through phases. Well, you don't have a hard time drinking water. You just – don't necessarily want to chug a gallon a day. Right, right. Yeah. So you can have nourishing and you don't have like rabies. Hydrating. <laughs> so you're not you don't have hydrophobia. Right. No. I mean <laughs> a hard time drinking the right amount of water. Right. Yeah. Because the goal for both of us we've been trying to do for the past few months is a gallon a day. Or a half gallon. I forget what have I been doing. No, it's a gallon. Okay. Four yeah. like uh, four liters, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> so some days approximately a I'm just like, I can't do it. So watermelon is a great solution. It's so good. And then the contemporary preoccupation we have, which could also be a tip of the week, yep. is Iron Chef America. We've been watching this lately, and we've really enjoyed it. Now, those of you who are longtime listeners know we love food, and we love talking about food. We also love watching TV shows about food, including Iron Chef. And it's better than something like Chopped, because Chopped, it can be enjoyable, but it has a lot of drama and backstory that I don't necessarily find interesting. And the chefs are hit or miss. Some of them are really good, and it's fun to watch them create things. And with some of the them like burn grilled cheese. But yeah, some of them are just not good at all, and they are just on there because they have some dramatic story to tell. But Iron Chef is just like the next level, and it's this, the kind of stuff where they come up with dishes I that have ingredients I've never even heard of. Like the entire dish is composed of ingredients I've never heard of, and it's just really cool to see them work. Yeah, you've got really high class professional chefs working in the kitchen stadium and there is a little bit of drama but it kind of just happens at the beginning and the end and it's easy enough to fast forward if you are have netflix right so that's another thing is watch it on netflix (laughs) yeah and alton brown if you know food network alton brown has been a food network um 
I don't know, icon for years. And he is the host of of Iron Chef. And he's pretty hilarious. It's if you funny. haven't seen the show, it's pretty funny because I think it's actually built off of a Japanese show because I think that's where Iron Chef started. Okay. So they like imported it, which is why it's Iron Chef America. Yeah. And so the chairman uh, who runs it is Japanese. Is, yeah. And so he always uh, uses like martial arts language and talking. It's just, it's funny. Like, it's pretty funny. They try to make it a little bit cheesy. Yeah, but it's not too much of that. So most of the time you're just watching really high caliber chefs perform in a short amount of time with random ingredients, but making the most amazing dishes. It just makes us want to. We are always like searching on Google while we're watching it to find out where these chefs have restaurants and when we can go to them. And I think we found it especially enjoyable because the dialogue is not absolutely central to what's going on. So yeah. we we like we talk a lot during it and we sort of participate together in watching it. And so it's kind of like we get to have a conversation about the show that we're watching while we're having while we're watching the show, which is Yeah. So we fun. feel like we are interacting more while we're watching these chefs. Right, perform. with each other, yeah. Yeah. So it's been fun. Yeah. So and we do it while we're eating watermelon. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that's all we have to say. We're going to get on to our first guest, Jennifer Lull, and then we have Dr. Will, the whiz kid, Brian. All right, we're back at Vernacular Podcast with our guest, Jennifer Lall. She is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So Jennifer, I have to ask just right off the bat here, what's the mission of the Center for Bioethics and Culture? And I read a little bit about your bio on the site there, and I noticed that you were a pediatric critical care nurse and then eventually a hospital administrator and then a nursing manager. So what was it that made you shift careers and get involved in what you're now doing at CBC? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, I was working in pediatric critical care. And as you can imagine, we were taking care of the teeny tiny sickest of the babies. Um, so we were always pushing sort of the envelope, you know, with the next new technology, the new breakthrough. Um, and you can, of course, probably imagine all kinds of ethical problems that happen right at the bedside when you're dealing with, you know, incredibly sick little children. Um, and so I, you know, I just had a burden to learn more about ethics in the space of biotechnology and medicine and technology and science. And so I went back to um, graduate school to pursue my degree in bioethics. And I founded the organization 16 years ago. Um, it was the, the capstone project, if you will, of my graduate studies was founding the, the organization. And we really do exist, um, you know, our official status is you know, an educational nonprofit, um, but to educate the mem you know, the general public, uh, the gate gatekeepers of culture, uh, lawmakers, policymakers, um, and so, and we intentionally cross all kinds of political divides and work with all kinds of people and groups who agree with us on our point of view. And you guys cover a wide range of issues, but a major part of CBC's work, as well as your own speaking rating, is focused on third-party assisted reproduction. Can you talk to us about that issue? Why is it so important to you and to CBC, and what is at stake? Yeah, you know, when we, we look out there, there's not a whole lot of people that are working in this space. And I sort of 
stumbled into it. Um, I, I started this Center for Bioethics and Culture at the height of the embryonic stem cell human uh, cloning debate, which led into the conversation about all these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of surplus embryos, which led me into just really doing a lot more investigation and looking into assisted reproductive technology. I mean, that's how we came to have almost 800,000 frozen surplus human embryos in the United States alone. And just in my writing and speaking and raising questions and wondering about the ethics of using other people's bodies, eggs, sperm, wombs to make babies, um, I started meeting uh, people that had been harmed, um, which led us into making documentary films and telling the stories of what happens to young women in the United States who saw an ad in their campus paper and made the decision to sell their, uh, their own eggs and then ended up not being able to have their own children or getting cancer. Um, so we, we just really have a real burden um, to speak out into this new technology. Now, when you say new technology, you're talking about surrogacy, because I know that a lot of what the CBC does is focused on surrogacy. Yeah, I mean, surrogacy is in the Old Testament, but that was the old uh, old version of surrogacy. Um, you know, now the modern technology, which has only been around for a few decades, um, which allowed us to get eggs out of a woman's body, that was the most challenging thing. Um, Louise Brown was the first test tube baby, and that was when the, the scientists were able to finally figure out how to get eggs out of a woman's body. It's always been very easy to get sperm out of a man's body, but the eggs are much more complicated. And then once we realized we could get eggs out of a woman's body, then we could start using eggs from one woman to help another woman with these eggs. And then that led to surrogate motherhood where we could, oh, we could put this embryo now in just a surrogate womb. It doesn't have to go in to the infertile woman's womb who can't carry a pregnancy. Or now we can help same-sex gay male couples have babies through surrogacy. I remember reading an article probably at least a year ago, maybe even two years ago now. I think it was in the New York Times, and it was about the, the burgeoning surrogacy, commercial surrogacy market in India. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the negative effects are of something like that? Yeah, well, for one, you know, this the whole problem of what happens when we turn pregnancy into a contract. You know, is pregnancy meant to be a service that you contract and hire out uh, for somebody to do for you? Um, you know, add on to that the complexity of money and money changing hands um, and the whole concerns about, you know, women like in India, you know, really destitute um, women who are doing this because they need the money or like here in the United States, military wives or low income kind of women. So there's all those kind of problems. Then you compound that with the problems that we're now seeing in just the technology. Assisted reproductive technology um, has built in problems that cause risk to women and to the children born this way, which we're now understanding because, again, the point, you know, that this is relatively new new technology, we're now seeing, you know, more and more years of following people and watching and having larger sample sizes. So we're now seeing that not only do the children have problems that are born through these technologies, but the women, the surrogate mothers um, also have problems um, with their own personal health. And then added to that is also the fact that many surrogates are asked to carry twins or triplets or more because this is very expensive technology. This technology has a very high failure rate, and the end game is to try to get somebody a baby. They're paying for that. They want a baby. 
uh, so that you know they will risk the woman and the children by putting in multiple embryos, which adds all kinds of ethical risks as well as medical risks. So let's imagine that there's a commercial surrogacy arrangement in which the surrogate does not face any sort of coercion or exploitation. She's given her consent and she's been fully informed of all the potential risks and there's really no expectation of any medical complications to the surrogate or the baby. So we'll just imagine that scenario. Would you still say that 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 surrogacy arrangement is wrong? And if so, why? Well, yeah, and it is hard to imagine that kind of scenario where you because you can't imagine, um, you know, the whole issue of maternal child bonding. I mean, bonding is a natural thing that just happens. Um, and what we do in surrogacy is we tell these women, do not bond, do not get attached. We tell um, the little children in the home, you know, to be told we're not keeping this baby, mommy's giving this baby away. Well, so I can't imagine. It's hard for me to imagine, but still, um, if I do imagine that there are no risks and everybody's informed and there's no coercion, um, I still think it's wrong because it's inherently robbing the dignity of um, the individual, the human being. Uh, this is not what our procreative bodies are to do, um, to be used to help create a new life, to then be given away. Um, so I think it's very difficult when you just look at this from a, a dignity perspective and sort of an, you know, an end, what is the purpose of the, our bodies, that you, it's not to get into these kind of contract arrangements, agreements. And we were in our film um, on surrogacy, Breeders, a subclass of women, we looked at all the different ways the policy debate is taking place, you know, no coercion, no money, altruistic for friends, for family members, for strangers, you know, any way we could slice it. And all of the four different stories that we told, there were problems. And you can't wish those away and you can't imagine them away and you can't regulate them away. I want to talk a little bit more about your documentaries in just a few minutes, but the uh, thought occurs to me that we haven't really talked about altruistic surrogacy, which is a surrogacy arrangement that does not involve cash exchanging hands, basically. Um, and Sweden just had a, a governmental committee put forth a, a, a report of findings on the practice of surrogacy and recommended that basically the whole practice nationwide be banned and that the government make it harder for Swedes to travel abroad to be surrogates as well. And one of the things the report highlighted was that even altruistic surrogacy is problematic because for a couple of reasons, but one of them being that money still changes hands, um, often just under the table. So there's an inherent coercion often involved in altruistic surrogacy that you don't see. Is, is there more to the story than that? Or is that really the only issue with altruistic surrogacy that you see? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with what the Swedish government has has said and written about. And, you know, I was just in London at a very pro-industry surrogacy conference where there were several women there from Canada. Canada, under their federal law, prohibits the commerce. So it's all altruistic. But there are so many loopholes in the law because so many expenses can be reimbursed. I mean, the women we're talking about, their cell phones get paid for, their cell phone bill gets paid for, their rent gets paid for, their food, their car, you know, it's just on a, so they're not paid to have the baby, but for nine months, they're getting a lot of money. So this myth of altruistic surrogacy, now it happens, sure, you might find in, in a story where a sister has a baby for her sister, um, but, but overwhelmingly countries that have even prohibited altruistic surrogacy like Canada, there's still enough loopholes, which is 
important to look at what the, the Swedish are doing because they really are serious about closing those loopholes and they're serious about making sure Swedes don't travel to countries like the United States or to Thailand or to Mexico where you can pay women to have babies. So you mentioned your documentary films, um, and you've created and produced four of them now and just recently re- released a new short film. Tell us more about this. What what prompted you to get into filmmaking to share your messages? Right. Well, the first film that we made was Exploitation, which looks at um, several young women in the United States who were college students and saw ads and made the decision to sell their eggs and then had terrible um short and long-term complications to their health. Um, When exploitation came out, um, you know, because we live in a social media world, people find us. People always say, how do you find the people in your movies? I'm like, oh, no, no, people find us. I was overwhelmed by the donor conceived, people born of anonymous egg and sperm donation. And so we made Anonymous Father's Day because we had all these people saying, tell our story. Um, you know, we, we've spent a lot of the time already just talking now about, you know, the, the individuals, the adults. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the children that suffer the most in these uh, third-party conception stories. So we told the story of the children now grown up, young adults, who wonder who they look like, who they belong to, how they came to be, who was this person that was paid $75 to, you know, give a sperm sample, um, And, you know, to fill out the third party reproduction series, we had to tell the surrogacy story. And again, because of our work and our writing and our speaking out, um, you know, we heard from women who had done paid or unpaid surrogacy and very much are against it and regret their decision. So we are just storytellers. It's a story war right now. The narrative in the media isn't this great. People can have children who used to not be able to have children. There's nothing wrong. Um, I'm off to Washington, D.C. next week to talk about uh, a bill that now provides IVF services to wounded vets. You know, if it's good for everybody, it should be good for our wounded veterans, too, to have all these services. Um, so we're trying to, you know, do our educational mission, if you will, um, and talk about the risks and the complications, the ethical, medical, legal, social complications of turning conception into a contract industry business. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the the donor-conceived people who have reached out to you. I have one friend who uh, was donor-conceived, and she didn't find out until well into young adulthood. And it really affected her quite a bit. And I know she's not the only one because she has networked with a lot of other people who are in her situation. And I can't help but think about how it would wreck me emotionally to to understand that at least one of my biological parents was someone I never met. Um, and that's something that I think more and more people are having to deal with and something that sh- a story that needs to be told. Uh, absolutely. And you hear over and over again, these stories of people who, um, who just were dropped this bombshell. It's this big, huge family secret that was, you know, held silent for, you know, a long, long time. There's a great line from one of the gentlemen in the film where he talks about secrets are like landmines and families just kind of tiptoe around, um, you know, hoping that they don't accidentally tell the truth or spill the beans. And it really does um, do a number on a person's, you know, they wonder what else did their, you know, their parents lie to them about, you know, the whole thing, if they lied to me about the basic you know, human right of knowing how I came to be on the planet. You know, what what else isn't true about my world? 
Um, one thing that we often hear in favor of surrogacy is that it empowers women. And I was wondering what you what you would say to someone who thinks it's anti-feminist to oppose surrogacy. And, and do you even call yourself a feminist? Oh, I very much consider myself a feminist. And I work with a lot of feminists who, uh, you know, along with myself and in all of our work, you know, I'm part of an international movement called Stop Surrogacy Now, which is, you know, if you can imagine every kind of political, religious stripe of person, we have you know, we have all those boxes checked, checked for people that have joined us. But it's, it's not empowering. Um, you know, again, it gets back to the dignity of ourselves as persons. I mean, you basically are, I, I've read enough of the surrogate contracts and I think okay here are women who were were shown a contract they were walked through it step by step hopefully by an attorney that explains to things to them and they're basically surrendering you know their their decisions of their body for nine months um, you know the contracts are full of things about what surrogates can and can't eat and what kind of activities they can do one contract I read said that if the surrogate was injured and suffered a some kind of a head trauma the intended parents who had contracted with her would have all decision-making over her body um, as to even when they would remove life support. But, you know, she was so devastated by the injury that she was on life support. Wow. And I thought, I mean, how can this be empowering to women? You know, the, the contracts always have abortion clauses and the abortion language always gives the power to the people that have hired the surrogate. Um, you know, they get to decide if and when a pregnancy is terminated or not. Um, so I can't imagine that that would be an an empowering thing. Even within family members, there was a woman right after we released our documentary film who was a surrogate for a family member. It was totally an altruistic, you know, helping a family member have a child that they desperately wanted. Um, and that whole family just is destroyed by that. And she even wrote a book, you know, telling her, her story. Um, it's, you know, it's not empowering. So you mentioned this movement Stop Surrogacy Now and how you're involved with an international network of people who are speaking out against this. Do you think the tide is turning in in your favor or do you think that this is going to be continuously an uphill battle? It's absolutely turning in our favor if you look at what's happening in the international context. I mean, India has closed their borders to international surrogacy. Um, Thailand's closed their borders. Mexico's closed their borders. Uh, the Australians just had a, a report came out last week after a very long public um, opening where you could, you know, submit your comments. And, you know, and the, the, the Australians issued a report to the European, I mean, to the Australian Parliament um, saying that the current law, which is only altruistic surrogacy in Australia, should stay. And the push was to make commercial surrogacy legal in Australia. Now, the parliament in Australia has not acted on that report, but we were very encouraged that the report came back saying, don't change the law. So when you look at what's happening in the international community, you know, that's, it's wonderful. When you look at how much of Europe, none of the surrogacy is even permitted now. Now, I'm less optimistic here in the United States. And when I travel internationally and I see the industry internationally, they're encouraging everybody to come to Canada and come to the United States. So the work now is to get the countries, like you mentioned, Sweden, to, you know, to shut it down in Sweden, but also say, and don't go to America to buy a baby there either. So we need the Europeans to sort of, you know, close their laws so that there's no loopholes allowing for the tourism to happen. Um, and we need to work 
much harder in the United States. And it's been very, very difficult. We did a national polling on surrogacy attitudes in the United States. And we don't have one group that you would think would be with us, with us. We don't have religious. We don't have conservatives. We don't have pro-family, traditional values. You know, all the demographics and the age groups that you look at when you do polling, nobody is with us. And that's because there's a huge knowledge gap. People don't understand that there's something maybe wrong with surrogacy. So there we have an uphill battle um, with just educating people because I think if you get one person to watch Exploitation and or Breeders, either of those films, they kind of go, whoa, I didn't know any of that. You know, new information. Yeah. Speaking of the knowledge gap, besides your films and your website, which are full of great information, are there other resources that you would recommend that we could point our listeners to? Well, we're very active on social media. So, you know, Facebook and Twitter is a place where we really spend a lot of our, um, you know, time just posting stuff and commenting. Great. Uh, and also the Stop Surrogacy Now campaign. You know, there's a lot of information there that's just particular to surrogacy. That's great. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that surrogacy is definitely an area where people just have n really no understanding of what's going on both in the U.S. and in other countries. So thanks for thanks for trying to fix that problem. You're welcome. Yeah, and it's such an important issue too. And uh, I, for one, know that I'm not as educated on it as I need to be. So thanks for pointing us in the direction of all the resources. And thanks for coming on the show to talk to us, Jennifer. No, my pleasure. And we do have, you know, as all of us do have problems with the media because the media controls the narrative. And right now the narrative is... You know, the kids are all right and Hollywood celebrities are doing it. So that means we can all do it. I had an open letter today to Adele who last week, you know, in one of her concerts in Denmark, pulled a couple up onto the stage. They were so excited. It was a, a, a gay male couple. You know, one of them got down on his hands and knees and proposed to the other. And then Adele right there at her concert offered to be the surrogate for them. I'm like, no, 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 Adele. No, no, no. <laughs> so we're trying, you know, to educate everybody. So it's great to be on your podcast. And hopefully your listeners will leave going, wow, I need to check out a film or two. Yeah, yeah I sure I hope, hope so. so. We'll point them in that direction. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Okay, thank you. Take care. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with Will the Whiz Kid Brian, one of our contributors, uh, mostly on math and science issues, but it's been a while since we talked to Will. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I don't yeah. know about the name Whiz Kid, though. Uh, that's that's <laughs> what we call you on our website. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you'll have to take it up with us later if you disagree. <laughs> uh, whiz, whiz is certainly debatable, and I did just turn 30, so I think kid is out of the question. I think kid is kids uh, applicable till you're 35, so you've, actually, oh, okay. you've got a few it's more a years in you. Term. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Will, so we had to have you on because uh, I'm a space nerd. I know you are as well. And uh, this month, April 8th, to be specific, there was a pretty big event in the spacefaring world that I thought we could talk about. And that is that SpaceX successfully landed a, their Dragon rocket uh, vertically from space on a floating barge. Yes, so, they landed a rocket so on a boat. So that sentence, as you like tell the story, it just gets more impressive with each word. Yeah. For, first of all, it's hard to land a rocket. 
Sure. Second, it's really hard to land it vertically. And third, it's really, really hard to land it vertically on a floating object. <laughs> In the middle and, of the sea. <laughs> and furthermore, just to make it even cooler, they give their capsules names like Dragon and they give their rockets names like Falcon. I mean, yeah, it's just, that's a really good point. Yeah. Way better so than the thing that Space they Shuttle. Was not the Dragon capsule, by the way. It was the Falcon 9 rocket that flew the Dragon capsule out of the atmosphere. Oh, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. I mean, that's why Will's the whiz kid. Exactly, so yeah. It's okay. I, don't don't feel bad. the whiz kid. <laughs> <laughs> I so, did so, see a headline, though, about SpaceX and their dragons. And first I was like, wait, is this like an Onion article about how they're sending dragons to space? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, they're actually sending dragons to space. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Although, I guess fire doesn't burn in space, so dragons would be That's true. It needs oxygen. Yeah. Although, well, okay. So there is the appearance of fire coming out of a rocket engine. Well, there is fire coming out of rocket engines in space because it's mixed with oxygen internally. Right, it's just combustion that you're witnessing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it it doesn't have a long burn because it doesn't remain in the combusting state for long. Sure. Well, the whole point of a rocket is to throw something out behind the ship really, 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 really fast. And when you throw something out behind you really fast, it means you get pushed forward. This is Newton's second law, right? This is Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I knew it was one of the laws. (laughs) You're closer than I am. (laughs) This is why Will's the whiz kid. We're just proving this over and over again. Anyway. Um, yeah, Newton's third law is, is what rocketry is based on. There's this thing called the tyranny of the rocket equation. So the way that this works is that in order to go farther into space, in order to go faster once you're up there, or even just to get up there in the first place, uh, you need lots of fuel. Um, but in order to hold lots of fuel, you need to be heavier. And in order to be heavier, you need even more fuel to lift the fuel that you have to carry with you. So this is why if you look at pictures of the Saturn V rockets that NASA uses to go um, out into space, they're, they're absolutely enormous, right? You have this gigantic red fuel tank. Most of what's going up into space is a fuel tank. It's almost all fuel because they need that much fuel. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we can now land a rocket on a boat. So at first you might wonder, why a boat? Why do we care about landing a rocket on a boat? Why not just land it on the ground? And part of the answer to that is that when the Falcon 9 rocket goes up into space carrying this dragon capsule with it, uh, it has to go sideways because if it just goes straight up, then it's going to fall back down. The idea isn't just to get past our atmosphere, which is relatively easy. Our atmosphere is only about 60, 70 miles thick. Uh, It's much harder to get past our atmosphere and into orbit because in order to go into orbit, you have to go very, very fast. So this recent mission was delivering something to the International Space Station. The International Space Station moves so fast that if you were to stand on the goal line of a football field and fire a gun across the field at the same exact moment that the International Space Station was passing over your head, then the International Space Station would reach the opposite end zone and score a touchdown before your bullet got a first down. Wow. So in other words, 10 times faster than a speeding bullet. Wow. So in order to uh, deliver something safely to an object going that fast, you have to catch up with it, right? You have to be going that fast yourself, in other words. And that's part of why it takes so much fuel uh, in order to uh, deliver this, this capsule to the ISS. But the problem is that you go up into space, you use an enormous amount of fuel to get up there, you use an even more enormous amount of fuel to get going sideways at sufficient velocity in order to make this delivery. Now, 
do you want to turn around and land back where you started? Well, no. In order to turn around, going that kind of speed requires another enormous amount of fuel. And the tyranny of the rocket equation says that adding uh, fuel to do the journey back again, it's, it's not just twice as much fuel, it's many times more fuel. So what you want to be able to do is not turn around and land back where you came from. You want to be able just to land in the most convenient spot. You want to be able to drop where you stand and just go back into the atmosphere and plop down wherever you can. That's a big part of why it's a big deal to land on a boat. Because boats can go anywhere there's water. And a lot of our planet is covered in water. So what this means is that a rocket can go and do its job and it doesn't have to have a lot of extra fuel on board uh, to go to some safe landing spot. We can bring a safe landing spot to wherever the rocket is going to need to be. And then it can safely land on a boat. And furthermore, once it does, that boat is already perfectly well designed to carry it wherever it needs to go next. Presumably, it needs to go someplace with a coast nearby. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So what kind of engineering is involved in getting this rocket not just to hit on impact, or, or not hit on impact, that makes it sound like it's exploding or something. Well, it, it did. The time, the <laughs> right. time before last It has right? done that before. What yeah. I'm saying is, it seems impressive enough to get the rocket to just be, you know, end up landing in the vicinity of the barge or on the barge. Right. But it seems like another thing entirely to get to land vertically. What kind of engineering goes into that? Well, it's it's all very delicate. Um, you know, as as I'm sure you know, it's one thing to uh, throw something tall and skinny at the ground. It's another to throw something tall and skinny at the ground a thousand miles an hour from seventy miles up, going. 18 miles a second and have it land perfectly well without breaking. Um, I mean, really the hardest part of it, I think, is getting it to slow down at just the right pace, land in just the right spot, and then stay up. I think the time before last when the rocket exploded, it wasn't any dramatic sort of failure on the, on the part of SpaceX. It looked dramatic because it exploded. But the reason it exploded was because it fell over. And the reason it fell over is that one of the arms that comes out to stabilize it after it landed, right. after, after it lands, uh, had some sort of mechanical malfunction. I, I have a friend who works at SpaceX. He explained to me exactly what happened, and now I can't remember. Uh, it might have been that something was frozen shut, or it, it had some, uh, some ice cake onto it at one point during the... Well, that doesn't sound right. I well, this is very minor, though, in comparison to what could go wrong. I mean, I, right. I, I take your point. Right. The point is that they weren't overlooking something huge. They were just not accounting for something seemingly small and insignificant that happens kind of at random to one of three or four stabilizing arms. And yet that was enough to make the whole thing explode. Well, speaking of small, small and insignificant, your point earlier about the speed of the International Space Station, mm -hmm. uh, someone once explained to me uh, this, the, 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 uh, the problem with space junk, you know, pieces of debris floating out there in orbit mm -hmm. um, by by telling me uh, conveying to me the simple fact that a little lug nut that's traveling in orbit uh, has the equivalent force on impact in mass times acceleration of a semi truck that's going at a, you know 60 <laughs> to 100 miles an hour wow and conceptualizing it in that way was crazy to me yeah. re realizing how much devastation a little tiny lug nut could cause to something like the international space station Sure, sure. Well, I mean, we already covered how the space station is moving 10 times faster than a speeding bullet. So if you take a lug nut, it's probably heavier than a lot of bullets, maybe lighter than some. 
But imagine a bullet moving 10 times faster than it should be. That's, right. that's a lot. Right? Bullets are already pretty destructive, as we all know. And then add to the fact that you're in a vacuum in space and any penetration of any object that humans are inhabiting can be completely devastating. Sure. Yeah, which is why spaceships actually need to be uh, quite quite sturdy, quite resilient to this sort of thing in order to survive in outer space. I mean, outer space is mostly empty, but if you happen to encounter even a tiny little rock coming at you, well, it may be coming at you so fast that tiny little rock could pose a serious problem if uh, your spaceship is not tough. Yeah, no kidding. But speaking of this, I was reading The Economist uh, earlier this week, and it was an older issue, but I was looking at an article uh, from I think their April early April issue, the, the date of the article itself is April 9th, uh, at least the online version. It's called mm-hmm. Pump It Up, Scotty, and it's about this company that is building was essentially an inflatable module for the uh, International Space Station. It's called the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, or BEAM, B-E-A-M. Uh, and the whole idea is to decrease the mass on launch, like you were talking about, Will. I mean, mass is a rocket engineer's worst enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the idea is to minimize that mass by making this inflatable module, but it's not just like a balloon. I mean, it's, we say inflatable, but it's a lot more sturdy than you'd think. It's made of a Kevlar like material. So it can hopefully withstand, uh, (laughs) minor impacts. I mean, cause even, even, uh, small flecks of sand in space can be devastating to a car windshield, for example. So they need to have something stronger than that, but it's kind of interesting that, uh, something that we would think of as normally pretty flimsy can, can actually weather the space elements. Hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting. I hadn't heard of that. So what is another purpose for the SpaceX wanting to send its rockets in and out of space? I mean, is it just to deliver things to the International Space Station? Well, at at the moment, that is a big part of it. Uh, That's part of how they make their money. uh, Yeah, I think it's their revenue model now, basically, doing doing commercial space launches. Okay, Right, so uh, people will pay them to make deliveries to the International Space Station. They they get paid quite a lot to do that sort of thing. Um, incidentally, sometimes, uh, if they can't make the deliveries on time, they have to pay quite a lot in penalties, which is another reason why it's such a big deal when they need to delay a launch or when a launch goes bad and they have to try again. I think, uh, and can you imagine the insurance premiums if you're, you know, launching multi-million dollar pieces of equipment up on a rocket? Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's absolutely insane, but they actually paid a half million dollar a day penalty earlier this year, uh, when they had to delay one of their missions to the ISS. So that adds up pretty quickly. Yeah. But they all, you know, they do get paid quite a bit to bring things up there and back down. But the ultimate goal is not just to be a delivery service for astronauts. The ultimate goal is really to explore the stars. Uh, it's, it's a simple but grand goal. They, they want to go to Mars. They want to go. Oh, wow. um, so they would take astronauts on their rockets or it would be like a drone? They want to send people to Mars okay. eventually. Wow. Actually, they announced, I think it was earlier today. I heard of it earlier today. Um, they announced that they are going to attempt to send one of their Dragon capsules to Mars in 2018, which is very close. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't think there's any possibility of sending people there for quite a while still, probably about another 15 years at least. Okay. But that is that is one of their ultimate goals. Another is to make travel within the Earth's orbit much more common. And one of the reasons why it's a big deal for them to be reusing their spaceships is that it can significantly cut down on the cost 
of rocket launch in the long run. Building a rocket is very, very expensive. So you don't have to build one every, build a new one every time, then your costs go way, way, way down. Kind of how, you know, airline flights are expensive enough already, but if they had to build a new airplane every time they took oh, the gosh, skies, that'd be terrible. It would be, that'd be yeah, crazy. It'd be terrible. Well, right now that's kind of the way space travel is, and SpaceX is trying to change that. It's also friendlier to the environment if you can recycle your rocket ships. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so, Will, I don't, I don't know how much you're read up on uh, all of these private space companies, uh, but there are a bunch of Silicon Valley billionaires who are doing this kind of thing. Uh, Jeff Bezos, not from Silicon Valley, but he's sort of in that mold as the CEO of Amazon. Right. Uh, he's got this company called Blue Origin, which is uh, directly vying with SpaceX for some of this market share, even though SpaceX is a little bit ahead. I mean, what do you think this... What do you think this type of movement in this sector indicates for what the future of space travel looks like over the next 10 to 20 years? I think it's good for the future of space travel. I think competition will breed excellence, or at least I hope it will, and that we're going to see a lot of development uh, along these lines in the next decade or two. And I sincerely hope that we will actually see people go to Mars by the end of the 2030s. Yeah, and I also sincerely hope that within our lifetime there will be commercial space flight. Well, we've talked about this before briefly with you on the podcast uh, about you going to Mars. So are, are you more optimistic <laughs> about your chances there or does it really all hinge on uh, your wife, Caitlin, letting you go, which is going to be a no every time? At the moment, she still doesn't want to let me go to Mars. <laughs> okay. Although at the moment, I haven't been invited either. So right. maybe it's all for right. the best. Well, I don't think Sally would let me go either. I, I could just tell myself that I would go if I weren't such a loving husband. It's not because they don't want me on the ship. Right. Plus, they, just, they know you're such a loving husband, so they won't ask. That's you. probably true. Exactly. That's but, probably why they haven't asked. But even yet. if they did ask you, you also have commitments on Earth, like being a contributor on Vernacular Podcast. And I honestly don't know how the Skype connection would be from the far side of Mars. Huh. Well, <laughs> I'm sure they would have a way of communicating with the Earth. It would be pretty dangerous to lose communication with the Earth. True. However, well, th there are actually uh, constraints on th the conversation. Would be awkward simply because the speed of light is too slow to carry on a conversation between here and Mars. Mars, uh, at its closest to Earth, is over two light minutes away, which means that you could say something and it would be over four minutes. That would be the worst answer. delay ever. It would make for a terrible podcast. I think we would lose listeners. So you, you, know, just, you just can't go, Will. I'm sure you could cut out the dead time for your listeners. It would be more frustrating for you and me. Just one hour-long interview would take like 30 <laughs> days to do. Right. And I might have better things to do if I'm on modest. No offense. Right. Yeah, fair enough. 30 days just trying to have an hour-long conversation. I mean, we have better things to do than editing that 30-day-long <laughs> podcast, too. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Hey, Will, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about SpaceX and other space-related things. Best of, you, best of luck in your uh, attempts to convince Caitlin to let you go to Mars someday. Thank you. I'm still hopeful, and thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. As always. All right, we're back at Vernacular Podcast to wrap things up for episode eight. But before we do that, we wanted to check our inbox. Let's see what we have. Ah, we have an email from Muriel. She is one of our contributors, but she's also a listener. And she says, I've been catching up on back episodes of Vernacular 10 minutes at a time while driving or making lunch. And I wanted you guys to know that I just went and looked up the Warriors season statistics to see whether or not they broke the record. I've never cared about the NBA before, ever. You guys are affecting powerful change in the world with your show. And then she adds in parentheses, I kid, but only kind of. Ishan made it interesting, which I did not think was possible. Thanks, Muriel. I totally agree with you. Ishan did a great job making basketball interesting to me, and I never follow basketball. 
And Muriel, you should listen to next week's episode because we're having Ishan back to talk more about Steph Curry because, spoiler alert, Steph Curry uh, just last week was voted the first unanimous MVP in NBA history. So That's amazing. It's a pretty spectacular feat. Well-deserved, and we'll talk all about why. Great. So that'll be more basketball in episode nine. And until then, check out our old episodes of Vernacular and get caught up. Check out our website, vernacularpodcast.com. Or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Head over to Twitter at vernacularpod, and that's where you can take our poll for the short baby name. That's right. Very important. And email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com with your comments or questions or in general feedback just on to the, say hi on the show whatever <laughs> maybe we will read your email in the next episode we'd love to all right until then for vernacular podcast i'm zach and i'm sally have a great week hi.